0: Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frinino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us.
1: As Billy Joel told our Chantal Westerman yesterday, he is putting pop music aside to focus on classical composition. The good news is he's left us a little something to remember him by.
2: Volume three of his greatest hits. When you sat down to do a Greatest Hits album, the third one, did you say, do I have enough songs? Or were you more in the line of, I have a lot of stuff? This was actually suggested by Columbia Records. Uh, maybe because <laughs> I hadn't put out an album since 93.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They came to me and said, you know, you've got enough material for a third Greatest Hits album. And I said, no, oh, it's impossible. And uh- then I realized the last
1: Greatest Hits, which was a double greatest hits album came out in 85 Mm -hmm. here we are in 97 so 12 years that is a while you know in the music business essentially
2: greatest hits you know you can also call it kind of a used cars situation you know which is okay they're good used cars
1: say goodbye to the old Greatest Hits Volume 3 had a lot to live up to. Volumes 1 and 2 documented Billy on a hot streak, releasing hit after hit and album after album. Those compilation records, released in one double package, became an iconic, best-selling release all its own.
0: By contrast, Greatest Hits Volume 3 came out a few years after what became Billy's final pop album. He had mostly been out of the spotlight after the River of Dreams tour, so the new compilation had fewer albums to cover and included three cover songs, no new compositions.
1: Thanks to those new tracks, Greatest Hits Volume 3 feels like a glimpse into an alternate path Billy could have taken starting in the late 80s. Those songs, plus a remixed All About Soul, would be the last glimpse fans would get of new vocal material for nearly a decade.
0: Almost 30 years on, this release feels more like a footnote than a major event like its predecessors. Still, there's plenty to explore over these 76 minutes join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's Greatest Hits Volume 3.
2: When the rain is blowing in your face And the whole world is on your case I cut off To make you feel
1: my love. Greatest Hits Volume 1 and 2, which came out in 1985, went on to become one of the biggest-selling albums of all time. And even though Greatest Hits Volume 3 is packed full of hits, it really didn't leave that same legacy.
0: You know, 1 and 2 was, I don't want to say daring, but it was at the height of Billy Joel doing whatever the hell he wanted. Let me make this live album of uh, songs nobody knows. Uh, Let me make a throwback 50s album. And then what the hell? Let me just put out volumes one and two at the same time. And it was the height of like Billy Joel superstardom. So it became part of it all. You know, something uh, I thought about that uh, John Jackson brought up was how box sets came along in large part because of the CD era. And all of a sudden people didn't want to replace all their vinyl when there maybe weren't uh, albums completely packed with great songs, but suddenly you could get everything you needed in like a five CD set. You know, so we were kind of getting into that era, too, with uh, Volumes 1 and 2. Certainly, we were at the point where people were deciding whether to replace their records or not. Volume 3 comes out when Billy's been out of the limelight for quite a few years now. I think we've discussed, even though it really wasn't that long, it really felt that long. It felt a lot longer. Like, you know, it was a difference between, for me, being in, like, 7th or 8th grade, I think 7th grade, to, like, being in 11th, which is, you know, when you're a teenager, of course, that's that's a really long time. (laughs) It's a really long four years. And you were probably, and you were right around that same age, give or take. If you were somebody that came on with the Stormfront or River of Dreams when you were a kid, that's a long time to go. Music kind of left them behind. The bonus tracks on this compilation strike me now as like alternate timeline Billy Joel. I'll leave it there for a moment. You probably figured it out already, (laughs) but you know, I'll leave it, I'll leave a little teaser.
1: (laughs) You know, I was in high school as well. And that stretch from 93 to 97 did feel like a lifetime. And especially in America, the River of Dreams tour essentially went through 94. 95, I believe, was more overseas. So, really, after 1994, Billy in America was pretty quiet. And this is pre internet where you had everything going on with an artist at your fingertips all the time. So, for me, 95, 96, there was nothing going on. I was moving on to heavier music, getting into a lot of the alternative stuff. I was in my high school years. So that gap in Billy's releases allowed me to discover other artists. And, you know, therefore, you know, by the time Greatest Hits 3 came out, at the time, it was a bit of a disappointment. And looking at the years, you know, it's 1983 to 1997. So that's 14 years. And you have only 14 original songs greatest hits volume one and two was only 12 years and you've got you know 24 25 something along that line songs uh so you've got a much richer volume of material to choose from from 73 to 85 than you did from you know the tail end of an innocent man to 97 there really wasn't a whole
0: lot to draw from the musical landscape had changed so drastically granted it had started before river of dreams, but I think, you know, going from the seventies to the eighties, if you look at the, eh, maybe the span of like 78 to 82, let's just take a four year span, you know, you heard artists that made it sort of quickly update their sound. And some of them, some of them ended up by the mid to late eighties, complete, uh, you know, electronic drums and, and, and every, gated snare and, and big synths. But, you know, they were able to sort of, like, get out of the really dry singer-songwriter thing or, you know, 70s kind of pop into a little more of a early new wave, a la, let's say, The Pretenders and Elvis Costello. But, you know, pop music wasn't the bad word that it was in the 90s. You know, once, once Nirvana hit, it was like there was a divide. Like, you kind of couldn't be into Ace of Bass and you know, Candlebox, even though Candlebox was kind of <laughs> shit, you know, like nobody was having those conversations anymore. You know, this is the point where Billy really fell on the pop side of things. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine recently. He's like, yeah, River of Dreams was the Billy Joel of my head." He goes, even as a kid, I was like, yeah, this is dad rock. I may not know what dad rock is when I was that age, but I knew it was like oh, right. dad rock, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. You even come through the eighties. Yeah. You had hair metal, but like it was still had a pop sheen to it. This is the first time this is really just completely out of style.
1: In the 90s is really when the format of adult contemporary light rock really took off because it was those artists of the 70s into the early 80s that were hugely successful and oftentimes hip suddenly were very out of style. Do you remember the movie Airheads where they were changing the rock yeah, station oh yeah. to adult contemporary. And, you know, it was all about polo shirts yeah. and khakis. <laughs> and it suddenly was like the anti rock and roll, even though a lot of that music had its roots there.
0: You listen to like rock and roll in the nineties and you're like, I-, I can picture human beings making this music. I can picture them in a rehearsal studio. I can picture them in a recording studio. You heard this stuff and you're like, where did they come from? Like from, from what Planet did did they drop this like belting singer Mariah Carey all of them you know I mean like you couldn't you couldn't fathom them coming up through the clubs or anything like that you know it was just like this thing that was all of a sudden like you know this is your vocal god now yeah well and
1: even the the big rock acts of the day the ones that weathered the storm were the ones that decided like okay well we're gonna pivot in the nineties you know Def Leppard came out with Slang in nineteen ninety six they got rid of their logo. They uh, cut their hair. Mm-hmm. They had drum loops on their records, and like a much it's a, it was a much more organic sounding album. Gone were the Simmons triggered drums, and Rick Allen's now using acoustic drums, and they're yes. very much going for the the '90s alternative thing. Metallica did the same thing. All these '80s metal and rock bands. It was either we're gonna become a dinosaur quick, or we have to pivot if we're gonna maintain.
0: And how how many of them just seem to like cool their heels? Like even Springsteen, who came out with a few albums, just kind of in his way, laid low, you know, until until it was his time again. And and Billy sort of did the same thing, although it took him an extra decade because he didn't do it by writing music; he just did it through the through the residency. You know, when Billy took off in '88, you know, the team kept him in in uh, you know in the spotlight in some way. Like I said, he was on Sesame Street; he was in Oliver and Company. You know, he was still popping up here and there in his ways. This was a whole lot of radio silence in the 90s. He was just out of it. And then like this, you know, weird thing just gets plopped down in such contrast to Greatest His Volume 1, Volume 2, that it was just destined to be an afterthought. Billy was the
1: one guy who openly talked about what a struggle writing was. Talked about, he's like, I love having written and I'm proud of my songs, but the process can be torture. And, you know, he was at a point now where touring Mm -hmm. was hard. Uh, especially after Alexa was born in 86, 85. So he was kind of at a point where he just wanted to get off the ride. But Sony, unfortunately, are like, hey, guy, you you owe us some albums here. Between owing new material and trying to maximize these old records, this is where all these compilations come into play. At this point, it was four years after River of Dreams, which was the same distance from Stormfront. Mm -hmm and River of Dreams. So Sony had to do something. And so with Billy not giving them much of anything other than a few of these cover songs, which we'll talk about, they really decided to do what they could with the catalog and release compilations, remasters, box sets, things like that. So this is where they started to try to do something Mm -hmm. with the back catalog.
0: Along with my theory of it being uh, alternate universe, Billy Joel, it is also the opening shot of the next 20 years of, uh, of releases. You know, whether he liked it or not. <laughs> yeah.
1: He openly talked about his disdain for them. And yet, at the same time, he knows that, well, this is my own doing. But I think that's the line that Billy has developed publicly. I think he knows. He's like, hey, this is good for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, imagine they twisted his arm and were like, no, man, you owe us originals. Like, get get your ass back in the right. studio. Like, you probably wouldn't be having this podcast. We'd be like, man, remember when you really loved Billy yeah. Joel? You know? <laughs> And like, and and you're like, now we can't even apologize for him anymore. And he doesn't even want to apologize for himself. They,
1: (laughs) you know, they knew the catalog that they had, that they owned and they knew they could get, you know, years worth of things out of it. And Mm -hmm. they were smart not to push Billy. He was finally at the level where he could say yes or no, I'm not, you know, Billy got to a point where he's like, you know, guys, I'm done. You have all this stuff, do what you want, but I'm out.
0: You know, I wonder if they don't mind, they make these deals for X amount of albums. You know, do they start accounting for like, well, they're not always going to be The Stranger. It's not always going to be Thriller. It's not always going to be Born in the USA. Like they they must account for that somehow. Like you're not going to shit gold for 30 years.
1: Well, to me, it's kind of like signing a ball player to this multi million dollar contract. You're signing Miguel Cabrera for what he's doing right now, not what he's going to do his final season. And I think that's yeah. kind of similar. They're like, you know, the iron's hot. We're going to get what we can while we can. and I think most understand you're going to get diminishing
0: returns one way or the other. I'm going to imagine that putting out a live album is infinitely cheaper than putting out a studio album.
1: Especially now, you know, back then in the you know 70s and 80s, you had to have the mobile recording truck do two-inch tape. But literally now, all you have to do is take a multi-track feed off the board with a cable. You're yeah. not yeah, having exactly. to do much. And then you've got your recording. You can you know mix it, master. It. Obviously, there's cost there designing the artwork, but I would think it's infinitely cheaper.
0: Right. Well, how about the and and the fact that you know Billy doesn't do this thing where you record him on a whole tour and he decides which tracks or which night he's going to do. Like he does Twelve Gardens a lot. Like he does an event. He does last mm-hmm. play at Shea. You know where you're not. You know you don't end up with like a whole bunch of like unused labor and audio and expense capturing all that it's like you 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 show up for 12 nights in the yeah. garden you capture it all you yeah. call it you go you capture Shay. you call it you go you mix it you go you yeah. sequence it it's not go. like yeah i think that makes a big difference same thing with yankee stadium really i mean that was all in the vault yeah, yeah i mean it was that was all there. there the hard part was done <laughs> i think we're doing all this talking just to really underscore what is it you know sort of unfortunately this is a bit of an underwhelming release but it does have some curios it does have some things to consider. You yeah. know, let, let's get into this.
1: <laughs> and as usual, I've got my uh table of visual aids.
0: <laughs> yeah, he somehow found this on a track. We don't know how. <laughs> I don't have a track. I've got CDs. I've got CD singles, cassette. He has an Edison
1: cylinder. <laughs> I do have the "To Make You Feel My Love" forty-five, mm. backed with two versions of
0: "Summer Highland Falls." By the way, Re- did I tell you I found "River of Dreams" with "No Man's you, No Man's Land" off forty-five? Did you I put did. that on the display? Yeah, party? that
1: was a good find. The River of Dreams yeah, and yeah. this one, I don't see those as often because, you know, people were buying cassette singles and CD singles by then. Those, were, I think these were more for, right. they were sold in retail, but for the Pizza Huts that still had jukeboxes, <laughs> these were going in. <laughs> yeah. And then I do have it on vinyl, um, which was released via Friday Music a few years ago. Greatest Hits Volume 3 was released August 19th, 1997 columbia and this spans 14 years 1983 to 1997. another thing that's fascinating to me as well too just in looking at this there's an overlap between volume two and volume three with albums you had two more songs from an innocent man that made its way here
0: which also speaks to what a smash hit and innocent man was
1: yeah certainly because by the time they were putting volume one and two together, and Innocent Man was still doing really well. So, for Greatest Hits Volume 3, again, we mentioned there are 14 songs for the few previous albums, and then there were three cover songs, one of which appeared on a compilation prior, and two were brand new covers. And overall, the r on the compilation on Greatest Hits Volume 3 here was Don DeVito, the album in our coordinator. Was Marcy Robinson. This was mastered by Ted Jensen at Sterling Sound in New York. Art direction Chris Ostipchuk and Ian Cutter. Cover photography Dan Boris. Interior photograph Len Irish. Art and commerce Jeff Shock. And then there's contact information for Maritime Music at the time. And so that's just the overall credits on producing the compilation. And we have the three new songs. First one being "To Make You Feel My Love." ANR Don DeVito. A&R coordinators Marcy Robinson and Veronica McHugh. LA project coordinator Ivy Scott. Piano, Hammond B3 organ. harmonica and vocal Billy Joel. Keyboards Robbie Condor and Randy Walderman. Guitars Philip Nolan and Bob Mann. Bass Will Lee. Drums Sean Pelton. Percussion sequencing Peter Asher and Joe Nicolo. cakewalk snare drum Anton Figg. Hmm. Strings and chorus arranged and conducted by David Campbell. Recorded at Right Track and Sony Studios, New York. Andorra, Capitol, and Conway Recording Studios, Los Angeles. Recorded by George Massenberg. Additional recording by Phil Nicolo, Dirk Grobenly, and Nathaniel Kunkel. Assisted by Jason Goldstein, Brian Garten, Charlie Picari, Louis Queen, Doug Michael, and Mel Jones. Mixed by The Butcher Brothers. Joel and Phil Nicolo and Peter Asher at Sony Studios, New York. Now that's a lot of credits for
0: one song. This is, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's getting into that sort of laboratory feel there. Anton Fig is the it was the drummer for uh, David Letterman for yeah. at least the uh, CBS run right for NBC yeah he was yeah yeah
1: I tell you that kind of dates the the production Cakewalk snare drum. Do you remember Cakewalk? Well, the program right. And that song obviously was written by Bob Dylan. We'll we'll get into that a little bit more. And next, you have Hey Girl, which is written by Carol King and Jerry Goffin. Credits on that one. Peter Asher and Don DeVito, production. Vocals, Billy Joel, keyboard. David Rosenthal and Billy Joel. Drums, Liberty DeVito. Guitar, Thomas V. Burns. Tommy is going by Thomas at this point. <laughs> Bass, Randy Jackson. Saxophone, Everett, har- saxophone, Everett, harp. Background vocals and strings arranged and conducted by David Campbell. Recorded at Sony Studios, New York, and Capitol Studios, Los Angeles, and it looks like several of the same mastering and mixing credits as well. So that's interesting. This one actually has Liberty and David Rosenthal and Tommy Burns on the track, which is in as Billy's getting into the area era of all hired you know studio guys. It's it's mm-hmm. nice to see that you know these guys played on this track at least. Yeah, and then the last song was Light as "The Breeze," which is a Leonard Cohen song. And that originally was on the Tower of Song compilation in 1995, which was a uh, Columbia, I believe, released compilation of other artists doing Lighter Cohen. So yeah, Light is the Breeze, produced by Tony Brown and Steve Lindsay, recorded by Justin Nealbank, additional recording, Leanne Unger and Ed Traney, assistant engineers, Jim Demain and John Hendrickson, and also Robert Charles, mixed by... Bill Schnee, vocals, Billy Joel, drums, Willie Weeks, guitar, Dan Huff, acoustic guitar, Mac McNally, pedal steel, Paul Franklin, piano, Matt Rawlings, organ, Steve Nathan, harmonica, Clint Black, horns, Jim Horn, Paul Littoral, Jim Hoke, Charles Rose, horn arrangement, Jim Horn and Steve Lindsey, background vocals, Bob Bailey, Kim Fleming, Yvonne Hodges, Donnie McElroy, Chris Rodriguez, Trisha Yearwood, Alex Brown, Jackie Gauche, and Mona Lisa Young. So it's an interesting cross-section of musicians along the three tracks and you know that's another difference between Greatest Hits 1 and 2. Now granted those bonus songs were original songs but they still were very much like hey me and the band are gonna go in the studio with Phil Ramon and record two songs.
0: Yeah, we're going yeah, to bang these out.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. You know, we're going to sit down, we're going to learn it in an hour. We're going to go through and do 20 takes, and we've got a recording. Yeah. Now, you have very much, like, granted, incredible session musicians. I mean, these are some incredible players. But uh, aside from Liberty and Tommy and David on Hey Girl, you're looking at all session guys, and we would see that again with All My Life. It was really Billy going, starting to get into his crooner phrase where he's just going in, maybe playing a little organ or piano, but largely Mm -hmm. just going in and singing on these tracks. I'm guessing these tracks were recorded without him in the room as opposed to a
0: a Billy Joel track. I hadn't considered that, but you're probably right. I would say especially Light as a Breeze because that was a compilation for something else anyway. Like they probably Mm -hmm. had it all ready for him and he just came in and did it.
1: It feels more like that, like, you know, Sinatra would come in and just, you know, granted they used to cut live with that technology but i imagine in later years you know i remember the spoof on saturday night live when they would spoof the duets you know the track would be ready uh, you know a drunken sinatra would it would come in <laughs> make a couple comments sing two lines and walk out <laughs>
0: yeah yeah yeah. that was the phil hartman uh um, that was the phil hartman sinatra, yeah. not the joe piscopo yeah the joe piscopo That's was like right mellow and dumb and, and phil hartman was like ornery
1: yeah <laughs> granted i wasn't there i don't know Especially um yeah, Light is the breeze for sure. I, I feel like he was just walking into some tracks that were already done. I feel like Hey Girl with Liberty and Tommy, like guys from the band, I have a feeling he was probably there. He seemed to have a bit of a connection with to make you feel my love, so honestly it wouldn't surprise me if he was a little more involved with that one, but not to the degree that he would have been
0: if it were his own songs. They have like overdubbed layers of drums, not that it's that much, but like that doesn't seem to be a Billy move at all.
1: No. Now, it's the guys doing the track who are like, yeah, well, let's have this, let's have that. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sure it was already done and
0: kind of presented to him to object. It right. wasn't, he
1: wasn't part of the process.
0: So there's not too much to say about the songs that we've gone over or will gone over, um, but that we get to all about Soul. And this is a remix. And you might not notice it at first, but if you A, B these tracks, you hear a ton of difference. Um, certainly the same performances, but the the remix is definitely more sonically expansive. Yeah, it makes the River of Dreams mix sound muddy in comparison.
1: It's like muddy and dry comparatively, which, which makes me wonder which version we hear a lot anymore. The way to tell for me, I, I feel like they almost sped up the remix just a scotch It feels a little hmm. faster, but it just could be in the mix. But they have there's also a tambourine in there quite a bit on like the two and fours. Yeah. Um. Well, that's like drenched in reverb
0: i think it's psychosomatic i think it's because it's a brighter mix it sounds a hair faster it almost sounds like the difference between listening to it on like crappy you know bodega earbuds versus a stereo system like i don't know i'd have to try it out but i don't know that like i would immediately know the difference unless you put them back to back i couldn't be like oh that's the remix that's the original you know i might i might second guess myself wondering what i'm hearing it out of um but Yeah. yeah definitely more dynamic range the backing vocals a little
1: more center stage
0: well the backing vocals and the strings come in and out at different yep. times is what i noticed like they're in at times where it wasn't on the album and vice versa same with some of the background vocals that kind of come in and out like that the guitar is more chugging it's more defined it's almost like a a social distortion like a really watered down social distortion sort of yeah like trusty les paul chug <laughs> going through the whole thing Just gave it a sort of like an updated sound yeah
1: You know, if this song were slower with that kind of production, the not the not the chorus, but the verses, I could hear like in a Def Leppard song. It just feels like a early 90s Def Leppard power ballad.
0: Yeah, I could see that. I would that would that would drive me up the wall, though. I think (laughs) I know you like Def Leppard. I'm not, I think we diverge on this one. Um, but Mm -hmm. I mean, I could actually almost see almost see Mike Ness getting a piece of it from Social Distortion. Not quite. He Mm -hmm. couldn't carry this like. But just the way those riffs come in is kind of like the leads he would have somebody do on his records and stuff, and like just like chunk, 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 chunk you know that kind of thing. We uh, was talking yeah. with somebody uh, recently, same dude that that said the, that River Dream sounds like Dad Rock, and I was saying like, you know, this is this is when you knew Liberty was wasn't in the room, I think, because like this song was so close to being like awesome, and it just got cheesed up here and there, like right. I don't think Liberty would have let him get away with as hard as the rock in that old rock and roll. Like I think i think he would have had a welt from a drum st- on the back of his head from a drumstick.
1: <laughs> had he had tried that <laughs> right right that that would never
0: passed the liberty smell test you'd yeah. coming a mile away <laughs> yeah because that's what really kills it like if you're teetering on it and he throws that line out you're like oh god damn it <laughs> yeah any other line because there's a lot of cool stuff in this i mean we talked about it on river of dreams i got into it but oh, i really sure. i really do like it i think it's it's just it's like a real flawed gem it's interesting to, to listen to these back and forth it, it makes me appreciate the river of dreams mix a little more because it is a little more the river of dreams yeah. mix is a little more organic by way of being muddy up now on this one i like having that guitar up front but it is a little slicker
1: it's worth noting too that the remix here was Released out of the gate when this was released as a single, so this didn't come along later. The CD single, the
0: cassette single, has this remix on it. So then we get to the three new ones here: "To Make You Feel My Love," "Hey Girl," and "Light as a Breeze." Now, in listening to this, this is where I realize, like, this is alternate universe Billy Joel because we, you know, we said earlier, and and this is tough to say because bill ramon made some good goddamn albums with Billy and with many many other people. But you know, we've said you could hear by the end of the bridge. Billy had a choice to make. Is he going to go adult contemporary with Phil or is he going to go another way? And he chose to double down and go rock. And that, you know, lasted him two more albums. These three songs represent what would have happened if Phil Ramon produced whatever album came after The Bridge in that alternate universe. Cause like this is what it would have sounded like.
1: Between this and volume one and volume two, volume one and two, it feels like strong end to end, ending with, you know, starting with Piano Man, ending with The Night is Still Young. I mean, just filled with huge songs you know greatest volume three is adult billy getting tired yeah (laughs) you could just see like by the time he you know after an innocent man light by the time he gets to the bridge it's a little feeling a little strain stormfront there's some new energy river of dreams he's a little tired again and trying something new having three different producers for these songs uh really they all feel different very different when you listen
0: side by side they all have like a, that adult contemporary sheen to it, definitely. But yeah, they, they, they're they all approached a little differently. So yeah, so starting with the To Make You Feel My Love, you know, the layered drums is something we've, I don't think we've ever heard before on a Billy, right? This is the first time he's done that. I mean, percussion notwithstanding. Scandin- yeah. Scandinavian. That's a good point. Yeah. But to, but to much different effect. They were doing all sorts of crazy stuff on that. So This is a
1: much more straightforward approach, just two two drum tracks layered on
0: top of each other. Nice to hear him on Hammond. I'm assuming that's him playing the Hammond organ because we know that's always what he wanted to do. So you know, you feel like this is this may have been right up his alley. Like, let me just play a Dylan. So let me just play the Hammond organ in the background, you know, of, of a Dylan song. You know, I don't have to write it. I don't have to arrange it. I just got to hit those swells and, and sing it. But yeah, man, the production is just way too precious, way too careful. Which is a shame because like there's a lot to this one that I heard this one before I heard the Dylan one and it took me a while to wrap my ears around Dylan's version actually because Dylan's was so ragged and I didn't know that with time out of mind Dylan was gonna like kind of get back to being a little freewheeling and rambunctious so to speak but <laughs> well, not rambunctious because it was a you know like he was a little sloppy on that one it was it was a jangly I know. you know sort of record I you just like your choice coming. of
1: freewheeling.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, I knew one? what I was doing, sir. Be knew... <laughs> <laughs> willing Bob Dylan. There's a lot of nice swell to this one. and There's a lot of emotion in it, but yeah, you know, it's it's just too polished end of the day. You know, Billy puts a lot of grit on the vocal performance, which yeah, especially is great in those bridges. And yeah, and that's something that Dylan didn't do on his, so it got a very different feel.
1: And you mentioned hearing Billy's version first, and it's mm-hmm. because Billy beat Dylan releasing right. it. <laughs> Which is like insane how the timing happened that way. So Dylan's version was recorded in January of 1997. However, Time Out of Mind came out September 30th. Billy released To Make You Feel My Love as a single August 13th of 1997. You know, obviously between Garth Brooks and Adele, it went on to become huge hit with a bunch of other people. But Billy and Garth were the only ones to call it To Make You Feel My Love. Everyone else calls it, but the real mm-hmm. original title, Make You yeah. Feel My Love.
0: I'm almost surprised this never makes it into concert here and there, just for the hell of it. That'd be an interesting one for him to pull out every now and again.
1: I think of any of these three songs, this is the one.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, unfortunately, you cannot say that about Hey Girl. I mean, Hey Girl, this is just, this is the elevator version. This, this literally reminds me of going to the orthodontist in the early 90s. Yeah. Like it just, well, the it was like on like the 70th floor of this building in Brooklyn. And it was just like, you know, you went, you just listened to that crap in the elevator and then you heard it in the waiting oh, room yeah. you were reading your Archie comics. And I was like, Billy, what are you doing to me, man? <laughs> <laughs> Probably two thousand two thousand five
1: 2005 ish. I had a, some dental work done and I was going to this dental school often for some extensive work. And they had this like horrible loop of. The same songs that were playing every time I was there. So they're fairly long procedures, and I would have to hear like "Afternoon Delight" like half a dozen times. <laughs> Make it stop, please.
0: More uh, drugs. More drugs. My uncle was a dentist, so of course he was my dentist. And when uh, "River of Dreams" came out, I had to get some teeth pulled because then my baby teeth wouldn't come out. And he was like, "Jack, I got something for you." And he 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 made the secretary put on uh, "River of Dreams" while he while he worked. <laughs> it was funny. Oh, funny.
1: On this, there were a total of two singles. Obviously, we had To Make You Feel My Love, and I want to touch on the commercial release singles a little bit. In America, there were two versions of the CD single, and one of them was the same as the 45, so you had To Make You Feel My Love for track one, Mm -hmm. and then you had Intro slash Summer Highland Falls from the Words of Music tour that he did, the lecture series. So Mm -hmm. it's him playing uh, Summer Highland Falls at a master class. Mm -hmm. And then track three is the Songs in the Attic version of Summer Highland Falls. And then you have the jewel-cased CD single of it, which has the album version of To Make You Feel My Love. Track two is a bare-bones version of To Make You Feel My Love. Now, I haven't heard either of these in a while, so I'd like to actually go back and see what the difference is. But there's two versions of To Make You Feel My Love. And track three and four are live. Track three is Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And track four is A Hard Day's Night. And track three was recorded at Giant Stadium on the Billy Joel Elton John tour. And Hard Day's Night is from the Frankfurt show in uh, 1994 that we are
0: covering as well. Yeah, it's funny. You got more Billy Joel outtakes later on when they had to put things on the CD singles.
1: So I also have the Japanese CD single of To Make You Feel My Love. Mm -hmm. which apparently I purchased for $3 at Amoeba in California at some point. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually a promo because there's a Japanese promo, not for sale sticker over it, which I just realized that's fun. But it's got the album version of To Make You Feel My Love. It's got the bare bones version. Track three is House of Blue Light. Hmm. And then you have intro Summer Highland Falls and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road to round it out. So it's interesting that they put House of Blue Light as a track on this version. Yeah, kind of gave it a second lease. And then I noticed there's a typo. They put House of Blue Lights with an extra S at the end. That's the commercial releases. There was a CD singles. There was a cassette single of it. And as we talked about earlier, there is the uh, seven-inch vinyl version, which has the album version on the one side. And it has two versions of Summer Highland Falls on the B side. Again, that single was released August 13th. And we had the second single from Greatest Hits, which was released October 10th, which was Hey Girl. And there is also a uh, like a promo CD single of it as well. You know, one thing that's worth noting, which was done also for Greatest Hits Volume 1 and 2 is, you know, the one thing that he was very involved in was there's a new photo shoot and new branding. It has this very, a lot of browns and oranges and the color scheme. Billy now with the beard, which he would have a beard or goatee now from then on out, pretty much Uh, wearing the shades. Arial Black font, if you font nerds out there know what that is. With Billy Joel in white, Greatest Hits Volume 3 in orange. And this is the branding that he would also go on to use for the Greatest Hits tour, quote unquote, that he would do in 1998. So this yeah. was kind of the the scheme, the photos, and everything that they would continue to use for the next couple of years. Billy's version of uh, To Make You Feel My Love did okay as a single. Peaked at number 90 in Australia. number. 29 on the adult contemporary charts in canada it cracked the top 100 at number 99 in the netherlands the billboard hot 100 it went to number 50 the billboard adult contemporary charts it went to number nine and the u.s hot single sales by billboard it went to number 53 that so was kind of a middle of the pack single kind of barely cranking the top 50 in a lot of spots Mm-hmm. and hey girl while technically released as a single did not chart anywhere that i'm fine so really one charting single is what all we got there
0: and then yeah hey girl you know somewhat of a carol king fan I, I did a show did like a two-hour show of hers uh, two years in a row a year off the pandemic and so you know i got a real familiar with a lot of these songs and they are great you know they are a lot of dimpan alley sort of nothing yeah bro building um pop songs but obviously really well done um this one actually wasn't one of my favorites anyway and then this version like i said is just super duper elevator <laughs> um mm-hmm. the, the note i have is bleeding gums murphy saxophone on this one yeah totally <laughs> uh yeah so yeah i mean it she he, he kind of keeps that feel of uh you know just just keeping the momentum going on it you know it's just there's no stop it just grooves the whole way through uh builds and swells a little and then that's it but it's just uh it's too it's too it's too young a song to be singing at this age and in this way you know yeah it's a teenage kind of heartthrob song
1: yeah it is so it's it's weird to see you know a guy in his mid-40s <laughs> trying to sell that for <laughs> sure
0: yeah and you know i guess you know you draw the unfortunate parallel to an innocent man where he totally pulled it off because he was just feeling that exuberant that he could write a song like yeah.
1: that yeah with an innocent man he had just gotten out of the long marriage and was now dating you know first a few different models but then him and christy <laughs> got together and he was like feeling like young and in love again teenage crush kind of stuff he had that vibe and that mentality that translated really well into the record In 1997 billy was someone who's like i'm tired I'm, <laughs> yeah. i don't want to make any more records i'm just like i'm kind of done with this while he sounds great there's not a connection to the lyrics
0: i would have loved to hear him do it like on the roof yeah That would have been cool yeah
1: that would have been nice
0: so then we get to the other side of of what could possibly be considered pop outside of prague (laughs) which is leonard cohen who's this sort of uh mutant bob dylan (laughs) in his way (laughs) 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 leonard cohen i'm going to say you know he's sort of an odd case because of hallelujah you know because that song has been misunderstood and reinterpreted in such pretty ways so many times yeah yeah um that like he he exists on the periphery in this odd way he's got so much critical chit and like zero sort of like uh mainstream popularity which is the the mirror image of billy in so many ways um you know i mean he couldn't you know le- not that he couldn't write a melody but you know leonard cohen certainly did not care that much about melody uh right and was all lyrics and billy was you know more you know not not quite the polar opposite but uh, you know certainly more music than lyrics so music this and makes, melody was first for billy right yeah exactly so this makes for a really interesting pairing to do uh, light as a breeze and you know for as long as light as the breeze goes on this minute this is six minutes 12 seconds and 11 seconds longer than all about soul but boy oh boy Does it feel way longer than that? Like All About Soul, you don't realize it's six minutes. Still manages to move. This one is like, you're like, yeah, this is going on. But that's, I mean, that's par for the course for Leonard Cohen. He's got a story to tell you while the the weed and wine kicks in. So it's like, you know, you're going to be here a while. (laughs) Right? Right? So this makes for a real interesting take, but the minimalist approach that Leonard Cohen often takes does not fare well in adult contemporary. You can be a minstrel with some basic acoustic guitar going in the background or something, and that's cool But yeah. when you have like the entire uh, you know elevator music thing going it's like all right this is this is starting to drone
1: and if you look at the track listing of this tribute album it's a lot of it's an adult contemporary tribute <laughs> yeah you know it's Don Henley it's Bono all these all these guys that by the mid 90s are largely in that world and I think as a result it was pretty pretty even though Leonard Cohen seemed to like it by many accounts and uh, was really enjoyed it but it was not critically acclaimed let's just say i'm hearing billy do his as i like to call his everybody has a dream delivery Mm. i picture billy doing the crook in his neck right you know (laughs) trying to do that steve winwood ray charles vocal
0: yeah you know, there's a lot of B3 going on in this one, which I think Billy just really liked playing at this point. <laughs> kind of almost works. Uh, uh, once again, he really uh, he kind of breaks something off on the bridge. He starts getting that going, but uh, you know, just just not quite enough there to, to satisfy the, the running time.
1: These three choices are still pretty puzzling. I think "To Make You Feel My Love" is my favorite of the you know Dylan songs. Are so good. I'm not you know not taking away from Carole King and from Leonard Cohen, but you know knowing that we had a few B sides. From the last couple records, you know, of Light, and you picked A Real Bad Time. I feel like those may have fit as bonus tracks, maybe a little more than just three
0: covers, but maybe not. Uh, This is pointed out in the oldmusic.com review. It doesn't include Modern Woman and That's Not Her Style, which were singles, and Modern Woman was, you know, sort of a hit in its own right. Uh, There is a bit of sculpting that went on here where, you know, uh, Leningrad... Made it on there, which was a
1: hit in Europe, but not in America. That makes a little more sense. That's a good segue, actually, because I don't think we actually went through the track listing. (laughs) This compilation really was the Stormfront Killer. (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, six of the 10 songs from Stormfront appeared here, which is pretty wild. Two songs from An Innocent Man, three songs from The Bridge, six songs from Stormfront, three songs from River of Dreams, and three cover songs. You had Keeping the Faith. An Innocent Man, A Matter of Trust, Baby Grand, This is the Time, Leningrad, We Didn't Start the Fire, I Go to Extremes, and So It Goes, The Downeaster Alexa, Shameless, All About Soul, The Remix, Lullaby, Goodnight My Angel,
0: The River of Dreams,
1: To Make You Feel My Love, Hey Girl, and Light as the Breeze.
0: Take out We Didn't Start the Fire, Put in State of Grace, and you had like the new and improved Stormfront right there, the Stormfront TP.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's interesting that i mean i know stormfront was such a massive record but yeah to see six from that album i mean i wonder if at the time people who really didn't have stormfront yet were buying that instead of stormfront at that point could have been could
0: have been scooping up the rest of them yeah you know, if you didn't buy it in 89 like those singles mm-hmm. right yeah and you were gonna get like you know it was almost like stormfront with bonus tracks <laughs> in that sense
1: yeah pretty much was yeah the album itself Sold one million copies in America. It was certified gold and platinum on the same date, which was March thirty first of nineteen ninety eight. So you're looking at about seven and a half months for it to go platinum. After that, it was never certified again. You know, we were talking about the box sets uh, with John Jackson. This was also the season that they released the Complete Hits Collection, which had Greatest Hits Volume One and Two, had Volume Three, and then it had a fourth disc. That was largely some live songs and some Q&A stuff. The beginning is sort of really tying a bow on the studio output. I try to remember back to where I was in the fall of 97. I would have been starting my senior year of high school. And again, my world was a lot of Primus and a lot of Metallica and a lot of (laughs) Toad the Wet Sprocket and the Verve Pipe and the Alternative and the Metal Bands. And that gap between River of Dreams and this, not that I ever left Billy, but I fo I was focusing on a lot more artists at the time who spoke to a 17 year old kid in high school right. in Michigan.
0: Yeah. Like I did the same thing. Like I didn't buy this one. I never owned it. Yeah. At that point I was getting into Prague. So I was like Jeff Tull, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And it was like, you know, what are you going to spend your money on? Am I going to spend my money on uh, an artist that I have everything, but these like three middle of the road songs that I don't really care about? Or am I going to finally figure out what the hell the 42 minute thick as a brick sounds like? And you know, I spent my money on thick as a brick. That's the way I think a lot of people went. I mean, you know, it stalled out at a million copies. Stalled at a million copies, you know. <laughs>
1: no, it sounds silly to say that, <laughs> but you got to understand the 90s was still a time where record sales were huge. You know, a guy like Billy Joel, you had a guaranteed mill yeah, in
0: sales. I mean, it's, it's notable in the sense that, you know, I think we're being... Uh, as uh, unvarnished as possible, you know, as we're probably ever going to be with this, with this release, you know, because it's just, yeah, I mean, it still went platinum, even though it was like, I mean, this is a relic. So much of this was yeah. the eighties and it was like just a world and a half away. Think about it. After this, the next thing that came out
1: was fantasies and delusions and another compilation four years later. Now, however, and I think this is something we'll touch on maybe down the road. This could be something interesting to unpack. The following year, 1998, is when Columbia and Sony would remaster and re-release his entire catalog. Mm -hmm. So you had these really elaborate, very well done reissues Mm -hmm. done just the following year.
0: They did this compilation and then shortly after decided to just reboot everything. You wonder about the inner workings of that, if that was really planned out or if it's just sort of how it happened. I don't know
1: how long it took to put this Greatest Hits Volume 3 together But I would imagine the the remastered program that they did with him was a few years, at least in the making. I mean, knowing what I know now about how long it takes a project like Yankee Stadium to go start to finish. Yeah. When you're remastering 15 Billy Joel albums and redoing the artwork and doing all these deluxe expanded liner notes and adding the music videos into the CDs and for its time, these are very elaborate You know, production and you know the graphic design
0: took a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So I'd imagine they probably started working on these a couple of years before '98. Must have been all kind of swirling at the same time, knowing that you know nothing new is coming out. Let's start. Let's start thinking about this release strategy. I mentioned original releases
1: of this, and it was you know CD, cassette, things like that. There's a company called Friday Music who does a lot of licensing from Sony. They were the ones who did the very first ever release of greatest volume three on vinyl and for an album that never came out on vinyl it looks really good i know you guys can't see it here but i'm gonna just show you jack i mean yeah. the quality is amazing they probably went to the original source photos and recreated it from the ground up but i mean it just looks really good pretty simple gateful with the photos from the photo shoot that they used but they released it in two different vinyl colors i want to say one is a red I've got it here, which is not open, but then you had another one, which following kind of the theme is a really nice
0: translucent orange. That's the, uh, the logo at this point too.
1: Friday music did a really, really nice job with this. And, uh, you know, you're getting some river of dreams tracks on here and the remix of all about soul and the three mm-hmm. new songs, you know, in that way, it's certainly a unique pressing. And now that Sony really got back into the vinyl business in the last five years, I think anything that's coming out is coming direct. This was probably the last one that they did, but they did a great job with it.
0: So there you have it. There is Greatest Hits Volume 3, something that turned out to be sort of a footnote in Billy's catalog. Optimistically, we'll say, I'll say, you know, it's the the glimpse into the alternate universe Billy Joel, and certainly appears to be the kickoff to the sort of remastering, repackaging uh, phase of Billy's recorded output career. Kind of really curious to know what like old head Billy Joel fans thought when this came out when they heard oh finally there's something coming out there's a couple new songs okay there's covers all right here's what they sound like if you were on the bus from like Turnstiles or even before that and you got this album what did you think or are are you the younger fan you know are you the fan that came on in on River of Dreams you know and this came out maybe you were in middle school you know maybe you had this maybe you had Middle uh, River of Dreams in elementary what was your perception of Billy going from maybe. Just having that one album, getting online on that one album, and then maybe picking this up to get a little sense of, of what came before it. Let us know, as always, Podcast at gmail.com. Find us on the socials Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Glasshouses, a Billy Joel podcast. Uh, also, hop onto our Discord server and tell us uh, what you think of that. You know, not only are we uh, chatting most of the day, well, you guys are, because I'm no good at forums. But we also do our monthly watch parties where we all get together. We'll uh, broadcast a classic concert video, maybe the music videos, a documentary. And uh, we'll all sort of, you know, chime in, comment, and uh, have a nice little uh, watch party discussion in real time.
1: I was just now reminded of another uh, set of 1997 happenings that we'll probably dig into down the road. Kind of packaged together with this Greatest Hits Volume 3 was... Uh, a few things that aired on vh1 you had vh1 behind the music Mm -hmm. and you had vh1 storytellers and billy joel got a part one and a part two there so those were also launched in conjunction with this and um, the storytellers one especially is really a really really fun watch so maybe that's a a watch party we'll do later on this year and we'll cover that era um but it was all kind of tied together you know new branding new look new compilation yeah trying to get something happening for somebody who by this point was not going to be making new record where were you guys all at at this point in your life. yeah it was an interesting phase of billy's career of uh an artist who was winding down and a record company trying to figure out what to do billy got quieter but the record company started getting busier
0: while you're hitting us up if you listen to us on apple podcasts please take the time if you haven't done so already to give us that five star rating and positive review every five star rating and positive review is a clear signal to the almighty algorithm that we are a podcast of merit And so uh, it puts us in front of more potential listeners, which makes it a fast, easy and free way to help support the podcast. Absolutely. And with that, we will see you next time. See you next time.